Uh, Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, I forgot to mention this just a moment ago. There's some on the sides of the tech booth. Feel free to uh, grab one of those and borrow it if you need to borrow it. Or uh, you can take it with you if you need to take it with you. That is not a problem with us. Uh, Follow along with the Bible app or uh, in your own personal copy of the Scripture. We're in Acts chapter 11. Uh, I believe if you have one of those Bibles, it's page 919. Uh, We're going to start in verse 19 today, okay? Now those who were scattered... Uh, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now just pause here. Let's just back up so that everybody's on the same page. Acts chapter 6, God brings uh, deacons to the church family uh, there in Jerusalem because there were people being neglected. Stephen is one of those. Stephen, because of his gifts and the way that he lives his life, becomes kind of a spokesman, one of the other uh, spokesmen for the early church. And so he speaks, uh, tells the Jews about their history and how they have uh, uh, worked against God and his plan by crucifying Jesus. They are so enraged at him, they take him outside of town, throw stones at him until he dies. He becomes the first Christian martyr. And as a result of that, this cat named Saul uh, begins to persecute the church. And so these people scatter all abroad, right? Now, that's kind of Acts chapter 6 and 7. Um, as they're scattering, the gospel goes with them. That's what it says there. And then God gets a hold of that cat, Saul, uh, on the Damascus Road. That's Acts chapter 9, and saves him. And Saul becomes Paul. We'll see him actually show up in the text in a minute. Um, but that, that's kind of the setting in which we are. And then he mentions a couple of places, Phoenicia, which is on the coast there of the Mediterranean, Cyprus, the little island out in the middle there, and Antioch. Now, don't miss this, because Antioch becomes a crazy important city in the rest of the book of Acts. Okay, We see people coming in and out of Antioch uh, all throughout. It's a city of about 300,000 people, which in those days, pretty good-sized city, third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, behind Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. And because of where it was situated, uh, it was kind of uh, in Syria, what's modern-day Syria, uh, because of where it was situated, it was a, it was a metropolitan area where the western part uh, or, and the western way of life and thinking met the eastern part of, of, and, and way of life and thinking. Okay, So you've got these kind of two things converging there. Uh, it was a tremendously diverse city, uh, tremendously... Um, a pluralistic city because you had all of these different uh, people coming in and out. I mean, it was, it was just a, a, a crossroads, if you will. Okay, so don't miss Antioch. That's the that's crucial. Okay, we're I'm putting a little emphasis on that because of that. And it says that they were speaking the word to no one except the Jews uh, because it was kind of their people, right? They knew how to talk to them about this. Uh, in Antioch, there were probably ten to twenty thousand Jews, depending upon who you asked back in the day. So a significant Jewish population in Antioch. Okay, verse twenty. Uh, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, and then this is the part where everybody goes, "Ah, did they really do that? Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. The Hellenists were the non-Jews, also known as the Gentiles, as we talked about last week those who were lesser breeds without the law. That's how people described the Gentiles. So you had Jewish people scattered by the persecution, going up to these different cities, trying to find a new way of life and a new place to live and a new uh, group to be with. And whereas it's comfortable and right, it is absolutely right to kind of speak to your own people about who Jesus is. These crazy people also spoke to people who weren't like them. 
Oh, the scandal, right? Here, here, here now is the third time where we've seen the gospel go to the Gentiles. So just back up, Acts chapter 8, Philip shares the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch, and the gospel gets carried into Ethiopia. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses where? In Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we see this beginning to be fulfilled as the gospel goes to Ethiopia, one of the uttermost parts of the earth. In Acts chapter 10, we just kind of finished this story. Peter takes the gospel, not to an individual, but to a household, Cornelius, this, this uh, non-Jew, this Gentile. He speaks the word to Cornelius uh, in Caesarea. And so um, you've got that. And here now we've got this third time. But here, here's the, for me, here's the crazy part, I think. Um, whereas uh, um, Philip had a divine encounter, hey, Holy Spirit, remember in Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit says, get up, go down to that chariot, share the gospel with that guy. And so he does, he goes down, the gospel goes to Ethiopia. Um, Peter has a vision, and then uh, the God speaks to him and says, go with these people and just say what you need to say once you get there. Okay, get that. Here, we don't have any record of these people receiving some sort of angelic vision or, or, or some sort of visitation. We just have everyday disciples making an eternal difference. We just have, verse 20, risk takers, people who were spreading the gospel even to the Gentiles, but who were just everyday people, everyday disciples making an eternal difference. Verse 20 again, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Greeks, the Hellenists, the, the Gentiles, also, preaching the Lord Jesus. They didn't let go of the message. They didn't try to change it to make it more appealing. They didn't try to make it better. They didn't try to make it more palatable. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. But they were preaching it to them also. Everyday disciples making an eternal difference. Uh, Philip, we've heard of Philip. Peter, we know about Peter. Who gets named in this group right here? Nobody. No names. Jesus knows their name. You know why? Because they went and they shared the gospel with these people, and now they're in glory with him um, and, and, and celebrating the fact that God has been at work for a couple of thousand years doing a, through everyday disciples exactly what they did. Everyday disciples making an eternal difference. Does that land on anybody today? Like you think about your Tuesday or your Thursday or your vacation or your work or your relationship in the neighborhood or whatever it may be. Does it, does it land on you that you now, not in Antioch, but in Friendswood or League City or Houston or wherever, you have the option, the opportunity even, to be an everyday disciple who makes an eternal in order to do that, you got to be risk takers. You may indeed share the gospel with somebody who isn't just like you. Oh, the scandal of it all. Nonetheless, you get to share the gospel. That's risk takers. Look what happens as, a, as a, uh, the outcome of this. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So, if risk taking is kind of where this story goes, uh, where excuse me, where it starts, the outcome is many, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed, 
uh, who believed turned to the Lord. So what's, what's the outcome? Many came to know Jesus as a result of this. Many came to know Jesus as a result of this. Here, here's the thing. It's not always the case when we step out and take a risk and share the gospel that many come to know Jesus. But it's never the case if we don't. Can I just say that one more time? It is not always the case that when we take a risk and step out and share the gospel, we sit down over chips and salsa or over coffee or at your office when the person comes in, oh, there we are again. Hey, man, can I just ask you something? Have you ever thought beyond yourself and wondered if there's something more and you begin to get into a gospel conversation with that person? It may never be that that person turns to the Lord Jesus or your office experiences revival or whatever, but listen to me, it will never be if we don't step out and share the gospel. It just won't. I say that because I think this is, we talked about this a few weeks ago, this is one of the places I think the Holy Spirit, for us as a congregation, us as a church family, one of the places where the Holy Spirit's going, okay, people, let's get, let's move. Come on, let's lean into this a little bit more. It feels a little dangerous, feels a little unsteady. Keep leaning, keep leaning, because there are people out there, hundreds of thousands of people in our geographic area who need to know that Jesus is in charge of the world, that he reigns over everything, that he has conquered sin and conquered death and has uh, given his life in their place so that they can be made right with God. Hundreds of thousands of people. Could Jesus show up in a vision? Yes. Could Jesus send an angel? Yes. What does he do most often? He sends you and he sends me. And we don't have to measure our success by somebody coming to know Jesus. We measure our success in the faithfulness of our witness and the rightful representation of what Jesus has done for us. So church family, I'm just saying we need to lean into this. So here's a very practical step. One of the things we've been talking about as a staff is how do we equip people to do this? Here's the thing. If you say, hey, listen, I'm not real sure I know how to share the gospel with somebody. Hey, no embarrassment in that. Here's, here's the thing. You may be new to the faith, or you, it may be a long time coming. Here's the thing. If you're not sure that you know how to do that, please stop right now, pull your phone out, send me an email. Okay? Hey, I, I would love to have a conversation with you about this. And we will help you. As, as we as a church family kind of lean into this, we will help you, equip you specifically um, for this. Okay? Many, the outcome of this was many came to know Christ. May it be true of us too. Secondly, um, I said Antioch, 300,000 people, uh, um, you know, all sorts of uh, diversity, religious, racial, cultural, uh, worldview, diversity, all of that. Um, I say that because. Um, I think this is an important thing to, for us to hold on to. In the middle of us leaning into this idea of share, being people who share the gospel regularly, um, I think this is really important for us to hold on to. Pluralism is no threat to the gospel. Now, pluralism may not be a word that you use this week. Uh, let me just... Pluralism, this whole idea that uh, there are kind of many ways of thinking or many uh, religions or many worldviews like plural, Right? Pluralism says, well, basically they're all equal. Here's the thing. Um, they're not all equal. Let me put that on record. Secondly, uh, pluralism as it stands, this kind of diversity and this way of thinking is no threat to the gospel. I say that because there are some who want to say, man, I just wish we could go back to the golden age, the good old days of the church, right? 
in their minds, most of them have like that kind of 1950s mindset. There's red shag carpet and some really hard pews and some cat in a suit up here who's got a nice tie and a big, I mean a big black Bible. Not Bible, uh uh-uh, a big one, right? And he's thundering away at, you know, whatever sin of the day he wants to preach against. And like you got Sunday school and everybody's just perfectly nice. Can we just be clear on this? Like those golden days weren't exactly golden. The good old days weren't exactly good. Like it may be clouded with some sense of nostalgia, but I mean, let's not pretend like the church, that that was the golden age of the church, uh, so, some people say, and I and I get this, especially as we're reading this, I really get it. Some people say, oh, I really want, I really wish the church could get back to the book of Acts, right? Like, whoa, yeah. Um, and I always say, which part of the book of Acts? Like the part where we're out sharing the gospel and that kind of thing, or the part where we're like giving our lives and sacrifice or getting arrested or beaten or something? Like which part of the book of Acts you want to get back to? Or, or, or just as a pastor, some pastors talk about it this way. Oh, I wish we could get back to the book. Which part? The, the part where the pastors were thrown in jail or the part where the pastors had to fight off doctrinal error day after day after day after day? Which part? I say that, church family, to say this. Let, let's, let's dispense with the idea that we should go backwards as a church to the good old days. Listen, the best days of the church are not behind her. The best days of the church are in front of her. So let's, let's lean that way, right? And because that's the case, pluralism is no threat to the gospel. We don't have to go backwards where everybody kind of had a generally Christian mindset to the 1950s or to the book of Acts where we're just this little clump and huddle of people. No, 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 no. We can move forward. The gospel flourishes in pluralistic environments. Why? Because it is telling a story that nobody else is telling. What is the What is the overarching story that is being told? Basically this, um, that we are down here at the bottom of a mountain somewhere, and there is something, God or some other goal, at the top of the mountain, right? And we have to kind of wind our way to the top. And you may be going up the other side, and I may be going this way, and my path may go like this, and you may be a straight up and down kind of person. Whatever it may be, basically though, we're at the bottom, and we got to get to the top. That's the story that everybody else is telling. That's not the story of Jesus. We are indeed at the bottom, and he is at the top, but the story of Jesus is he came down from the top to us. He pursued us. That's a better story. That's a way better story than is being told. So pluralism is, it is no threat to the gospel. Who God is, who we are in light of that, how he has worked, what he offers, there is no story better that is being told. It stands, the good news of Jesus, the gospel flourishes in a pluralistic context context, because it stands in such stark contrast to the rest of the stories that are being told in our world. Very practically, just for a moment. Well, I can't believe that you would believe that. This is the conversation that you're going to have on Monday. I'm going to go out and I'm going to talk to these people. Okay, good. You're in that conversation. I can't believe that you believe that. And all of it comes back to it. Listen, here's what I believe. I believe that there is a God in the universe, and he's not counting on me to get to him. He saw me and who I was, and he came after me. 
And for some, there will be a light bulb moment that they go, yeah. Yeah, I've tried about 48 different ways to try to get my life right. I need somebody to step into my world instead of me trying to get to that world. For some, that light bulb will just go on. Very practical. You don't have to be mad about it. You don't have to be frustrated with their response. Just lead into sharing this story, sharing this good news. Lastly, verse 22. Uh, we talked about the risk takers who, who did this, and then the, the um, outcome is that many came to know Jesus. Uh, and then we've got this kind of product. As a result of this, these are the kind of things that happen. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Excuse me, and they sent... Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Why? Because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So even more, it says. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. We know him as Paul. Um, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So let's just, a couple things at play here. The product in the end, like the very end of this story goes something like this. Uh, First, uh, people who were faithfully converted were encouraged to faithfully continue in the faith. That's what he says. Barnabas saw the grace of God. He was glad. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. Uh, as a result of, uh, of their um, engagement and them staying faithful to the Lord, um, what happened? Well, what happened was many more came to know Jesus. That's an important thing. And so um, and it was so important, I think, that uh, for Barnabas to see these people continue to in the Lord, that he even took a couple of weeks, went up to Tarsus, found Saul, came back with him, and they taught. And why, why is this crucial? Like, why is it important for us to say, hey, good news, you've been converted, stay faithful now, continue to walk faithful to the Lord because of the things that were coming. Um, you and I, we don't know uh, what tomorrow holds. This is what tomorrow held for them, verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, as they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there was a famine that was coming, right? Unpredictable things happen. And what, is the, what, is, what changes for the follower of Jesus? What's the answer? Nothing. We continue to live faithfully. That's what we do. Faithfully converted, Faithfully continue in this faith of following Jesus. Nothing changes when, when, uh, um, when something unexpected shows up. Chapter 12, look at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Listening, uh, excuse me, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him uh, to God by the church. So you've got this kind of unpredictable famine happening, and then you've got this unjust persecution um, happening. Both of those things are true. What changes for people who follow Jesus? Nothing. 
Monday may be awesome. Tuesday may be terrible. What changes? In some sense, there are some things that change. Yes. What ultimately changes? Nothing. You continue to live faithfully to God. And I love this part. After he gets Saul and down in verse 26, he found him. We brought him back to Antioch. A whole year, a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And if you're an underliner in your Bible, this is a great point to underline. You ready? At the end of verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Disciples were called Christians. Christians is used like four times in the New Testament. All four times it's used by unbelievers about disciples. I say that because in our vernacular um, and in our culture, I think sometimes this is what we think. We think, okay, I become a Christian, and then at some point I, I become a disciple, right? Like, like Christianity is like elementary school and discipleship is like graduate school, right? I mean, like you, you kind of move from here um, to there. And I'm telling you that, I am, I'm trying to identify that so that we're clear on a couple of things. Number one, the disciples were called Christians. And they were called that by unbelievers because they talked about Jesus all the time. It's not that the Christians became disciples. The disciples were called Christians by people who were watching their lives. And so this is not like, like Christian, excuse me, discipleship and following Jesus is not graduate school or advanced Christianity. It is Christianity. That's the thing. So you have Jesus who looks at his first followers and what is his call to them? What does he say? Follow me. That's what he says. He didn't say, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card. What? All he said, simply, follow me. That is a discipleship right there. That, that's where it starts. And that's where it continues. Um, Peter, excuse me, uh, uh, Jesus uh, later in, in Mark chapter 8, um, says something pretty powerful, and I don't want you to miss this. Can we get that scripture up on the screen, Mark 8? And calling the crowd, now don't miss this, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So who do we have? We've got the disciples, the followers of Jesus, and then we've got the crowd, those who may or may not choose to follow Jesus, right? We've got the disciples and we've got the crowd. And he gives the exact same message to both of them. Why? Because discipleship isn't advanced Christianity. It is Christianity. What's the message that he gives him to the crown and the disciples? He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you've been around church at all, you know, that's one of those classic discipleship verses. Hey, don't live for yourself, live for Jesus. That means taking up your cross and following him. Here we have Jesus giving it to both sets, to the crowd and to his disciples. Why? Because Christianity and discipleship are the same thing. It's not an advanced version. It's not an upper-level class. The disciples were called Christians. Peter, after he had denied Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know that I love you. Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Yes. Okay, the, feed my lambs. And then he says, listen, there's going to come a point, Peter, where they lead you to a place that you don't want to go. Listen to me. Follow me. Even in his restoration, even when Peter is being restored and commissioned into ministry, the call is still the same. Follow me. 
And he looks at the church at Antioch, and you know what he says to them? Follow me. And he looks at the church at Heritage Park, and you know what he says? Follow me. That's what he says. The Christians didn't become disciples. Disciples were called Christians. What would that look like? We've talked about this before, but just briefly... Um, the transformation. Disciples are people whose lives have been transformed, and it looks in these particular areas. First of all, their allegiances are transformed. Now, this is very different than you moving from one city to another and having to buy a new football or basketball jersey or whatever, right? This is, I used to be a such and such fan. Now I'm a, this is very different than that. This is a profound shift in the heart. Your, your fundamental allegiance changes. No longer do I live for myself. Now I get to live for something bigger than me and something more important than me. No longer do I get to, or, or do I live um, for something uh, that, that I can control or that I can put my hands on. Now I get to live for someone that is in control of me, my allegiance shifts. That's why it's important for us to remember that Jesus is a king, not a president. We didn't vote for him. We give our allegiance to him. And when our allegiance shifts, what we also find is that our affections shift. So no longer now am I beginning to want things that are, that are out of whack and self-destructive for me. Now I'm beginning to want things that are good and right. Are these things still true? Sometimes it, you know, I get out of line and mismanage some things. Yes, absolutely. We still struggle with this, but primarily my affections are lit for something that is crucial and important. Allegiance, a transformation of our allegiance, a transformation of our affections, and ultimately a transformation of our actions. We step out and do the things that he said to do our best. You want to know what a disciple looks like? That's what a disciple is, a person whose allegiance and affections and actions are transformed. What, what mindset do we have that, that, that promotes this kind of Christianity and then discipleship, uh, uh, kind of dualism there? Here's what I think happens. I think that's because we think um, that, that, that uh, Jesus came uh, to to, uh, to the earth to make sure that we get to heaven. Now listen, I am all for heaven. Like, as a person, I'm ready. Like, I, I want to be there. As a pastor, I look out on these sections and see some of the struggles and questions and problems that you're challenged with, and I'm like, God, any old day, as a dad, kids with special needs, I'm like, yes, yes, and yes. One more time, yes. Like, I'm ready. And you look at the world and how jacked up it is, and I'm like, Jesus, if you want to come back at any point and make all of this right, I'm good for that. But let's be clear. Um, the, the primary point of us following Jesus is not for us to get to heaven. The primary point of us following Jesus is to become like Jesus so that we're ready for heaven when we get there. Wouldn't it be terrible to have all of our affections and all of our other stuff kind of out of whack so that heaven wasn't as enjoyable? Wouldn't that be crazy? Like, let's be the kind of people who follow Jesus today so that we enjoy him when we get to be with him forever. Barnabas, 
Barnabas saw grace, it says. When he saw, verse 23, he saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. He saw grace, and that grace called for their allegiance. That grace stoked their affection, and that grace seasoned, if you will, their action. And then Barnabas encouraged them all. He encouraged their allegiance so that they knew that they were not alone. He encouraged their affections, and he encouraged their actions. He wanted to make sure that they were going to stay in it together. One more verse from Hebrews chapter 10, and then we'll close in just a second. But listen to Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We're together. How do we stir one another up? How do we provoke these affections in us so that we do love and good works? Not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. That's what Barnabas said. That's what we need. Um, I, I say that to say this. It, it's not enough just to be on the team, right? Because the whole point is not to be just on the team. The whole point is to, when you're intended for the game, it's not enough just to wear the jersey. This happened yesterday. Um, see if you maybe got to watch. It was fourth down. It was time to kick a field goal. And that poor little freshman is over on the sideline. Warm it up. Let's just practice some more. Let's just practice. And did you see the holder? He's like, where's my guy? Where is my guy? It is not enough just to be on the team when you're intended to be in the game. Church family, it is not enough just to be on the team. Practice when you're intended to be in the game. There's a world out there that needs us to lean into the game. It needs us to be ready. Let's be those people. Let me pray. Sing one more song of response. Um, Father, for uh, these few minutes, I'm very grateful. Thank you for them. Uh, what I pray is as we take a moment and sing and respond and reflect, whatever else we need to do here, God, I ask that you would um, really press this down on us. Help us to think specifically about our week. Um, not, somebody else, not somebody else's week or not the week that we hope that we have, but our week. Let's look at our calendar and think about what it would mean um, to lean into this a little bit more, to, to be risk takers, to be uh, people who shared the gospel, to be people who lived in this way. People who wouldn't be scared of, of uh, different people or different way of thinking. It'd be people who were so soaked in the truth that people would look at us and go, oh, those are, those are Christians. Followers of Jesus. Whatever our week holds, I pray that that would be our commitment.
And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing one more song of response. If we can pray with you about anything, please make your way to the back. We'd love to have a few moments where we pray with you. If you need to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, we would love to have that conversation too. You can make your way right back there. We'd be glad to talk to you. Let's sing.